hope everyone had a happy Father's Day yesterday, those of you out there who are fathers. Uh, it's one of the greatest things in the world. It was something that when I was younger, I never thought I would ever achieve. I never pictured myself getting married. I never pictured myself having a child or being a father. I always thought I would be a perennial bachelor. But the day my son was born remains the greatest day of my life. And it was the greatest moment I ever experienced watching him come into the world and watching him grow and become the fine young man that he is is an experience that I just can't even even begin to describe to those who haven't experienced it. And I reflected yesterday on uh, Father's Day. I took a nice long stroll with my son, talked about life, had a lovely dinner with him and, and my wife, and had a very, very tame Father's Day. And it caused me to further contemplate all those out there who are fathers and choose to abdicate their authority. And there are cultural prevalences where this happens. I mean, no particular culture is perfect, and no culture is completely immune from people who choose to abdicate their parental responsibility, but it seems to happen more with certain cultures than with others. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast, the NPO podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of three easy ways. Go to either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, depending on which device you use, and simply search out the NPO podcast. Click subscribe, and you're off to the races. And the alternative, if you prefer a third-party podcast aggregator app, go to those two app stores I just mentioned and search for the Podbean app. Download that free app and then search out the MPO podcast and click subscribe. Any way you do it, you will be subscribed, which means you will be notified whenever a new episode is uploaded. You will be able to leave reviews and comments, and we desperately need your reviews and comments particularly ones of a positive nature so that the show can continue to grow and that we can continue to bring you bigger and better and more frequent offerings. So, I thought I would segue into this because um, we've been talking about woke culture and how we're going to do a show on corporate woke culture and how that's going to lead many businesses to ruin and it already has led some to ruin. But before we engage it on a corporate level, I thought I would speak a little bit about something that caused me to think about it yesterday, being that it was Father's Day. And I wasn't joking, and I wasn't trying to be inflammatory. I was pointing out something that was brought to my attention. You know, I have a, a number of friends who engage in merchandising. And um, he engages in merchandising for a number of different stores. One particular store he services is a Target. You're all familiar with Target. It's a big store. And um, this particular store is located in an area with, shall we say, a rather high minority population, a high African-American population. One of the things that he does is to go over the greeting card section. And on Mother's Day, 
Those cards are very well maintained, they're very well stocked, and they fly off the shelves. Just a month later, it's a completely different story when Father's Day rolls around. Now, it's no secret that African-American culture here in the United States is a matriarch society. It's a matriarchal society. The women are preeminent. They hold the families together, and they are revered. These black mothers are revered for the tremendous job they do and attempt to do, even if they uh, are not always successful the, the, because of the, the weight of circumstances against them growing up in areas of the country where leftists have abandoned law and order and left uh, their children exposed to a hostile environment where they're often forced to either join gangs or be trodden over by gangs. But it's definitely a matriarchal society. Meanwhile, the fathers are absent in many cases. Not all. And those who are good fathers, regardless of your race, I salute you. But we see TV shows about this all the time. On shows like Oprah and other shows. I saw one show where they were interviewing all of these fathers, these African-American fathers, and the number of children they fathered without regard for the consequences, what was going to happen to the children, what was going to happen to the women who now have to raise these children, and who was going to pay for it was astonishing. There was one young man there who had fathered over 20-some-odd children. This is unthinkable. How dare this be allowed to take place? If I want to have another child or contemplate, I'm, I'm past the age, my wife is past the age of childbearing, but if I wanted to have another child, I would have to give serious thought to whether or not I could support and provide for that child. So why should I have to restrict myself to the number of children that I have because I have a very, very honest and um, honorable forthright approach to only having those children that I can afford to raise and provide for just so I could pay high taxes so that some deadbeat crackhead can go out and have as many children as he wants with as many women as he wants with no cause for what it costs or who it costs. There is no moral equivalency here. So I begin to wonder who the disadvantaged are. And all this came to a head with the celebration of Juneteenth and all this nonsense and at the same time around Father's Day. So it all was swirling around in my head and I thought I would try and make it work. This corporate woke culture is nonsense and this wokeism as a popular culture is bigger nonsense. Everybody talks about racism. There was an article here I read in the Times dated a few days ago called Welcome to Woke Speak. Its logic-defying rhetoric is making heads spin. Let me read some pull quotes from this article. I'll I'll skip over things, but I, I think some of it's interesting. If you don't read these papers, you won't find all this information out. In the midst of the nation's racial upheaval last year, media outlets, such as the Associated Press, the New York Times, Washington Post, rushed to start capitalizing the word black in reference to African Americans, some announcing the move as a long overdue gesture of respect. While Rio Clear has not changed its style, the change elsewhere prompted newsroom soul searching on whether to write white in capital letters as a reference to people of European descent. 
Capitalizing the term made sense as a simple matter of consistency, but the argument for lowercasing white staked its own moral claims. One was that capitalizing it will legitimize white supremacy. Another was that white in lowercase is an apolitical description of skin color. It doesn't merit capitalization because whites don't represent a shared color. I don't think that all people of color represent a shared color either. So it went on. These are just some of the ridiculous things that hit here. And we have more that's coming. Paradoxes come in a variety of iterations, from moral imperatives to abstract propositions. In Ibram X. Kendi's best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, <clears throat> the celebrity professor writes that cultural relativism is the essence of cultural anti-racism. To be anti-racist is to see all cultures in all their differences as on the same level, as equals. I'm sorry. I see all people as equal. I really do. I don't see color I never have. But when I see situations like are gripping our country now, with hosts of men, young men, from some cultures, as they call it, just abandoning the children that they decided to have, with no more forethought than just turning on or off a light switch. If you're calling that a culture, the culture of having single children, having bastard children all over the world, all over the country, if that's what you call a culture, I'm sorry. It's not equal to other cultures. It can never be equal to cultures that recognize that the family unit is the center of everything. Half the problems we're having in this country are because there's no family. Now, a lot of woke people in Hollywood don't recognize this. They think the more woke it is, the more whack it is, in my opinion. But there are some who see it. Denzel Washington has become my new favorite Hollywood person and actor because he recognizes, I've seen the man speak, he recognizes the problem as being the breakup of the family. I saw him in an interview with someone, I can't remember the interviewer's name, but the, paraphrasing it, the general cast of the conversation was that the interviewer was saying, you know, these children, they're in the system. He goes, oh, no, it's too late, Denzel was saying. By the time they get into the system, it's too late. The problem was, when they were younger, why didn't their father get them in line? Why didn't their father teach them the right way to do things? And the interviewer said, well, some of these uh, children, their fathers are absent. Okay. And then he said quite correctly, I think, well, where was his father? the father of the absent father. This is a systemic problem. It's a cultural problem. And it's got to be solved. And I don't know that white liberals can solve it for the African-American community. I think it's something that the African-American community has to solve for itself and has to address for itself. Because if we don't get a normal family structure back as the mainstream of society, we're not going to have a society just going to have nonsense. And now the big thing to affirm uh, this almost reverse racism that's going on, in fact, I'll quote something here. There's another article that was in um, the Times called Waking Up from Wokeness. Um, I'll read a few more comments from this um, great 
celebrity professor, Ibram X. Kendi. Ah, here it is. It's it's absolutely essential that we believe Jussie Smollett. If we don't, other people who have been attacked might not have the courage to come forward. But Jesse Smollett is a liar. Jesse Smollett paid people to do this. This was a staged racial attack. But Kendi puts the claws in the paw with observations such as this. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Race-based discrimination now, race-based discrimination tomorrow, race-based discrimination forever. This is the kind of nonsense that you're going on. And to satisfy this thirst for reverse discrimination as somehow being justified by past discrimination, in some cases 150 years or more ago in the aftermath or during the Civil War, we now have a holiday, Juneteenth. I thought I'd give you a little facts about Juneteenth. How did they alight on the day Juneteenth? Well, I'm going to tell you. Juneteenth began, and it was celebrated as a holiday in certain states for quite a long time. Uh, It's a commemoration of the anniversary date of June 19th, 1865, the announcement of General Order No. 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger proclaiming and enforcing freedom of enslaved people in Texas, which was the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery. Remember that. That is the genesis of Juneteenth. I can guarantee you, just from my own observation of people's studied neglect of history and the studied neglect of our history in our school system, that if you ask all these millennial idiots and these Generation Xs or whoever the hell they are that are running around thinking this is the next great thing and that it was the greatest thing since sliced bread that we now have another paid holiday, none of them can tell you what I just told you. They haven't the foggiest idea of why June 19th became a date. And it's far from definitive as the date that slavery ended because on January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln had already officially outlawed slavery in Texas and in all the other states of the original Confederacy with the Emancipation Proclamation. That predates Juneteenth by approximately two and a half years. And although the Emancipation Proclamation declared an end to slavery in the Confederate states, for a short while after the fall of the Confederacy due to certain political considerations, slavery actually remained legal in two Union border states, Delaware and Kentucky. Now, this conflict ended officially with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which constitutionally abolished chattel slavery nationwide on December 6th, 1865. That's five months after Juneteenth. And it still wasn't over because the final actual release of slaves took place in the Indian territories that had sided with the Confederacy, namely the Choctaw Indians. And that happened in 1866. 
So why we're putting all our eggs on the June 19th basket and calling it Juneteenth is ridiculous. Maybe it makes for a fancy name. But slavery is something that can't, the end of slavery, I should say, is something that just didn't happen on a particular day. It didn't happen like uh, an armistice declared on a particular day. It was a product of much work, much blood, many ratifications, many orders signed, proclamations signed over a period of several years. So we can't all celebrate it on June 19th, and I don't think we have to. I think what we should be celebrating is the end of the Civil War, the preservation of our union. I think that's the bigger good that everyone is seeming to lose sight of. But people on the left are heavily vested in this new norm, this uh, woke culture, this anti-racist culture which achieves its anti-racism by virtue or by way of racism. Well, people I'm sure are jumping up and down. People I'm sure are celebrating. They think Donald Trump is gone and Joe Biden's in charge. But um, a warning is coming across the shores. You know, it was interesting. When Donald Trump was elected, uh, Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit movement, talked about how Brexit's roots were founded in the people's desire to retain their country and, not, and retain their culture and not have it hijacked through illegal immigration or even legal immigration at a level that they could not tolerate because they could not assimilate these people. Indeed, the most popular name for a male child born in the city of London, England today is Mohammed. Who would have thought it? Well, just as the waves of Brexit swept across the Atlantic and swept Donald Trump into office, a warning is now sweeping across the Atlantic. A democratic warning. A warning of woke Democrat fragility. And this is probably the most interesting article that I came across this weekend that I thought would share with you as we begin our introduction into the exploration of woke culture at the corporate level. But listen to what this Democrat politician or liberal politician had to say. Let me read, I'll I'll pick some pull quotes to give the introduction of the article. After every election, pundits see the result as evidence of the terminal decline of the losing party. This is certainly the case in Britain, where the Labour Party suffered a catastrophic defeat in recent local elections, and the by-election in Hartlepool, a solidly Labour seat that the Tories won. There have been many columns arguing that Labour lost its core constituency and has little hope of commanding a parliamentary majority ever in the future. Here in the U.S., such predictions routinely accompany Republican defeats in the polls, of course, because the media is liberal, controlled by the Democrats, or should I say that Democrats are controlled by the media, and so every time a Republican loses or there's any kind of race, it's always the the bellwether for the end of the Republican Party. And this year was no exception. But what makes the difference this year is that we see a diagnosis of a bleak future facing not the Republicans, but the Democrats, the winners who now control the presidency and both houses of Congress. Their supporters also happen to dominate the commanding heights of the culture, the economy of media, entertainment, education, and both the public level 
elementary, junior high school, high school, and the state level and private level at the collegiate level, plus big tech, big sport, big business, and Wall Street. But is the American progressive movement built on a pile of sand? That's what this article asks. Is the Democrat glee at the divisions in the GOP premature? Is the fate of the Labor Party in the UK a warning for the Democrats? The two parties are often compared. Is the Labor Party dying? Parties fade and die, sometimes unexpectedly and comprehensively. The Federalist Party in the United States faded quickly in the 19th century. That would be the 1800s for those of you who don't study history in school because they don't bother teaching it to you. Britain's Liberal Party went into a sudden and comprehensive decline a century later. And history, as we know, has a very convenient way of repeating itself. So don't think that what happened in 19th century America and what happened in 20th century England can't happen in 21st century America. No less than Tony Blair, one of the most successful left-of-center politicians in recent history in Britain and recent memory, he was prime minister for 10 years, 1997 to 2007, argued that the steep decline of the Labour Party is typical of what's happening to center and center-left parties all over Europe, including the French Socialist Party, the German SPD, and of the Spanish and Swedish left. Now, the Democrats here in the U.S., the article goes on to say, are in a much stronger position, or so it seems. They won control over both houses of Congress and the presidency. But reading the article again, Blair argues, quote, the Biden victory was a heavy reaction, not so much against the policies as the comportment of Trump. You know, as Biden is trying to say that people didn't really disagree that much with Trump's policies. They just disagreed with the way he comported himself. But that doesn't fly with me as far as that goes, because uh, many people didn't like the way Rudy Giuliani comported himself. He was a self-righteous son of a bitch. But he governed New York correctly, and people decided even though he was abrasive and unpalatable, they would rather maintain him rather than go back to the way New York was when Dinkins was running it. And it was a sink of crime with over 2,000 homicides a year in the largest city in, in this country. I like to think that most people would have tolerated Trump's comportment. And I still don't believe that the election wasn't stolen. If you're a regular listener of, of this show, you know I've explained to you mathematically why it was stolen. But this is Blair's argument, that the Biden victory was a heavy reaction, not so much against the policies of Trump as it was the comportment of Trump. And in Biden, this is even more striking, the Democrats nominated possibly the only potential leader who could have won. Now, Biden doesn't know where he is. If anything is clear, if you have an open mind, Biden is a dementia-ridden fool. He is nothing more than a glove, and he is being filled by every corporate entity that you can imagine. The Facebook people, Zuckerberg, the Google people, Schmidt, George Soros, um, the holdovers from the Obama administration, Kamala Harris is a puppet as well. Unlike Barack Obama, who won in 2008, 08. Joe Biden had no coattails, and the party did poorly in state-level votes. 
which is another reason why I said this election was stolen. There is just no way that people preferred Biden over Trump when all those Republicans did so well, and the Republicans did so well in the House election, gaining so many seats. People wanted Republican government. You can't tell me these people who want Republican government voted for Joe Biden. I'm just not buying it. The Democrats' success in the 2020 election, however modest and whatever its causes, was the exception to the precipitous decline of such parties in the West. We see here in the United States a similar rift, as in the UK and Europe, between the main center-left or progressive party and its working-class supporters. Now, I have to tell you, I am extremely impressed with Blair's insight into this, because even though I disagree with him about people voting against the comportment of Trump, on virtually everything else, he seems to have hit it on the money. His finger is right on the button. And he's making some observations. What's the big move that's sweeping the country right now in the United States? The anti-police, the defund the police movement has become the new cry. Along with recognizing Juneteenth and seeming trying to elevate uh, minority rights, not equal with majority rights, but elevating them above majority rights. Isn't that what it's been the past year? Uh, An increase with Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and catering to the transgenders who constitute one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of the population and in nothing more than a mental disease. It's all about helping the little one to the expense at the expense of, of the majority, helping one person at the expense of others, all predicated on the age-old and discredited notion that if you look at a fat man and a thin man, you come to the conclusion that the fat man got that way at the expense of the thin one. In other words, anything that someone has gotten has been gotten at the expense of somebody else. And that's a false logic and a very, very dangerous precedent. But Blair puts his finger on it and goes on. He said that this old-fashioned leftism, quote, is combined with a new-fashioned social-slash-cultural message around extreme identity and anti-police politics, which, for large swathes of people, is voter-repellent. Defund the police may be the left's most damaging political slogan since the dictatorship of the uh, proletariat. It leaves the right with an economic message which seems more practical and a powerful cultural message around defending the flag, family, and fireside traditional values. To top it off, the right invinces a pride in their nation, while parts of the left seem embarrassed by the very notion of it. And that is what I've always said. Deep down, most people in this country like or love the United States. People who have come here from other countries where they were oppressed and found their fortunes here in America sometimes love it more than people who were born here who take it for granted. Now, before you think I'm getting soft on immigration, I'm not. I've never been against legal immigration, and it's those people who come here legally that generally espouse the sentiments I've just said. Increasingly, people who are coming here illegally are doing nothing of the sort. They're coming here to see how much they can get for free. And it's nothing more than a voter registration drive for the Democrats to try and get these illegals here to vote and vote for the perpetuation of these uber-leftist policies, which will ultimately bring this country down to its knees. We won't be able to be a first world 
power anymore. We won't be able to be a first world military and we will be subjugated by the Chinese because they're playing for keeps. They're not playing for politics. This article goes on to make a few more excellent points. There's a section here entitled Race and Class. And it speaks how the Democrats felt safe neglecting predominantly uh, white areas of the country, the industrial areas of the country, the disenfranchised states that we saw, the states that Donald Trump flipped in 2016, Wisconsin, Michigan, states like that that they couldn't believe, Pennsylvania, all these states that he flipped that they couldn't believe that he flipped uh, because of high unemployment, collapse of civility, uh, opioid addiction, which ravaged those areas, um, collapse of civil society in all its forms, it says here, voluntary associations, church, schools, family. Um, And as the white population suffers declining fertility and the numbers of racial and ethnic minority rise through both legal and illegal immigration, there was a, a great general climate of despair in these communities. And Trump tapped into that anger and despair. Uh, and conservatives and Republicans have brought widespread, uh, widespread attention to the plight of these people in these areas that were forgotten. And no, none other than Bill Clinton warned the Hillary Clinton campaign that you cannot forget these people. If you do, it's going to come back to haunt you. And it did. The article also credits here that Trump, for all the nonstop attacks on him from the liberal propaganda machine that the legacy media inflicted, he did a better job than had more tactful and moderate Republicans such as John McCain and Mitt Romney. In Democratic primaries, blacks preferred the reclusive Joe Biden, the old white man, to either Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. What does that say? about the state of racism. Are these black voters racist because they didn't vote for Kamala Harris or Cory Booker and they vote for the old white guy? These are very, very important questions that nobody wants to answer. But I'll answer them. No. The blacks who voted for Biden weren't racist. They weren't anti-racist. They just voted who they preferred. They voted without accord with race, which is very interesting because usually... There is a great deal of loyalty in the African-American community uh, to candidates of African-American descent. How interesting, in the heat of this defund the police rhetoric, in the heat of this woke culture, uh, in the heat of this movement to raise and elevate minority cultures above that of white cultures, that these working class black voters voted against a female black candidate and a male black candidate in favor of an old white man. That says a lot. This whole nonsense of this woke culture, this is not something that black people invented, as is always is the case, invented by white liberals. Anti-racism, critical race theory is an ideology of affluent, woke, white liberals. That's all it is, and that's all it will ever be. Okay? It's even it's spoken here in this article, they talk about... Um, Linguistics professor John McWhorter sees the current anti-racism as a new religion, one that's actually harming his fellow black Americans by infantilizing black people, setting black students up for failure, and passing policies that disproportionately damage black communities. You're right, Professor McWhorter. The more you help people, to, you know, to a certain degree, help is good. 
But when people are helped to the point where they come, become completely dependent on government and other entities, they become unable of handling their own affairs, unable of supporting themselves. And so the article ends by asking, are Democrats desperate? And I think they are. Look at the stark contrast they draw between the last time the Democrats were in power and now. I'll pull the quote from the article. When Obama won the presidency and controlled both houses of Congress in 2008, he did so under the rules of the game, according to the article. And I don't disagree with that. Now, he did a lot of damage, but there's certain things he didn't do. And that's the point of the writer here in this article. He didn't seek to pack the Supreme Court or end the filibuster or add small Democratic strongholds to the list of states, each gaining two senators or abolish the Electoral College, or talk about abolishing the Constitution and moving to a centralized, one-person, one-vote system with no regard to regional representation, the approach that works so badly as in some Latin American countries. Now, if you listen to this show regularly, you know I explained all of this in my show on the Electoral College and what it was really designed for and why you can't simply have one person, one vote. You have to have a system that accords a certain degree of power to the states themselves as sovereign entities. But to go on, if the Democrats and their supporters were confident that they could win without limiting free speech, canceling and deplatforming their adversaries, packing the Supreme Court, adding states, and eliminating the filibuster, they wouldn't be eager to resort to these measures. They know they can't. And, I, and the more they do this, the more that what, I'm pro- what I've been saying took place can be proven. Trump didn't lose. They robbed the election, and everybody knows it. I left a comment on the Epic Times website about how You cannot continue to spit in people's face and tell them it was raining. The numbers prove that what we saw happen could not have legitimately happened. And they know deep down that if they try it again under the current system, everyone's going to know it. So the way to do it is to simply change the system with H.R. 1. But H.R. 1 is not going to pass because Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, And the female senator from Arizona are going to vote against it. So Kamala Harris can go there with her tie-breaking vote all she wants, but there is no tie to break. They can pass the House, but they can't get it past the Senate. So the more they try and force these things down your throat, the more you realize just how tentative and how fragile their hold on power is. They know that many of their projects and policies like defunding police, criminalizing misuse of pronouns, or allowing irreversible experimental medical practices even for children, I'm talking about the sex change laws that are passed in certain states like New Jersey and Massachusetts, while banning other professional treatment, approaches to treating gender dysphoria are widely regarded as insane They know parents strongly oppose this, even if they dare not say so. The inclusion of transgender ideology in school curricula, requirements to admit biological males to women's facilities and sporting competition, and the inculcation in their children in shame and guilt about their parents and this country. All of this, this article highlights, is excellent. And all of this is is fermenting in a fury inside 73 million Americans who know they were ripped off last November. 
And if this thing continues to go the way it's going, and people are continually forced against each other, as the conflict you saw the other day between the Proud Boys and this defund the police crowd and other leftists, we're going to move closer and closer to civil war. And that's kind of ironic. They just passed another holiday, which I explained to you has no direct relation to June 19th, that you can say. But it all happened in the aftermath of the first civil war. How ironic that that holiday should find its birth on what may very well be the eve of the second civil war. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.